An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside Aid, we're pleased to welcome our special guest, Professor Uri Gadizi, one of the world's leading behavioral economists. Uri holds the Epstein Atkinson Chair in Behavioral Economics at the University of California, San Diego, and is also visiting professor of economics at Amsterdam University. Uri is the author of Mixed Signals, the well-received book about how incentives designed to get people to do one thing sometimes send unintended signals that confuse people about what they're supposed to do, or worse. In some ways, Mixed Signals is the logical sequel to his previous book, The Y-Axis, co-written with John List, which examined why people do what they do, which naturally looked at the incentives people felt. In both books, as well as in his academic papers, Professor Gamizzi focuses on putting behavioral economics to work in the real world. Considering the real world adds a complexity to economics, but given the choice between elegant math that assumes away real-world messiness, or the type of research Uri does that leads into reality without oversimplification. I'll take Professor Ganesi's approach every day. Welcome, Uri. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for the nice introduction. So what's your origin story? How did you become interested in things like incentive and behavior? Now, I normally end this question by asking, how did you become the person you are? But in your honor, I'll phrase it this way. What incentives cross with what personal experiences led you to where you are in life? So the answer has two parts to it. Uh, professionally, I got to it just by chance. I, uh, I'm Israeli originally, and in Israel, you first go to the army when you're 18. And I started my undergrad when I was 23. So I looked for the degree that will be the fastest. And it turned out that the economics you could do in two years because it could take a summer semester as well. So I studied economics and then... My wife found a job in Amsterdam, so we went to Amsterdam, to, to the Netherlands, and I wanted to do either an MBA or a PhD. Turned out that MBA costs money, PhD is free, so I ended up doing a PhD. So everything was by chance. But uh, about incentives, I, since I was a little kid, I really cared about why do people do what they do. And I think that there are very few things that can inform us about this better than incentives. And that's, by the way, true also about myself. In many cases, I stop myself and ask, why did I really do this? Right? So I think that I know the incentives, but then when I look deep, deeper, I find different incentives. And that I, at least I find it fascinating. There were incentives involved in speed and cost in your, your by accident career. I mean, you Absolutely. mentioned you mentioned you were educated and began your academic career in Israel. You're now in California. A bit of an obvious question, but we're in the age of AI and pattern recognition, so let me discuss a pattern. So did your academic colleagues, Daniel Kahneman, who won a Nobel Prize, and Amos Tversky, who would have won it without, with Kahneman, 
had he not passed away before he was awarded. They're sort of regarded as the fathers of behavioral economics. I, I know you said it was by accident, but did you know them or know of their work in Israel and to influence your thinking? In fact, I think um, Sversky began thinking about behavioral economics and thinking about how the Israeli army should uh, award people various positions. So I think that the Israelis are overrepresented. I don't think I know that we are overrepresented in game theory and in behavioral economics. And I think that those two are connected. Game theory is much more mathematical, but in the idea that you think about why you're doing what you're doing, and if I'll do A, how are you going to react to it? And if I'll do B, how are you going? So the interactive part of it, we come from a place that is, Israel is interesting because it's part of the Middle East and part of the Western world in a sense, right? So it's uh, it's interesting in that respect. So to, to your answer, I did not know about Kahneman and Tversky when I went to, to do my PhD, but I wanted to do my PhD in game theory. And then I learned about Kahneman and Tversky's work, and that's how I switched to behavioral economics. So I'm 30 years younger than them, but the influence was absolutely there. Let's talk a bit about mixed signals. We in the podcast audience have a number of financial advisors, institutional investors, and corporate governance people, as well as executives who listen to the podcast. So how businesses get incentives right and wrong is of acute interest. We, for instance, there's been a long time controversy about executive compensation. Tell us a bit about your research and your book. So the... The main thing that I'm trying to push in the book is that incentive sends signal. It's not just that I pay you or I give you. It doesn't have to be money, whatever your incentives is. It's not just that. It's also showing you what I care about, signals about what I care about. So if I'm the employer, I'm the, the executive and I design incentives for you, or I'm your parent or whatever it is, when I decide to incentivize one thing and not the other, I'm telling you this thing is more important. I'm sending you a signal. In many cases, these signals are not aligned with my official statement. So I can tell you one thing. So you said that many of your listeners are financial advisors. Financial advisors are told by the company, you know, you, you should care about the customers. You should do everything you can so the customers will get whatever risk profile they have, whatever uh, whatever is suitable for them. But then they give them incentives to push more, uh, more uh, whatever it is that they're pushing, right? Um, which is not necessarily in line with what they're doing. And as a financial advisor, what you're going to do is probably follow the incentives, not just because you're going to get more money this way, but also because you think that that's actually what your bosses wanted you to do. So it's not just the money that you get, but it's also you get a signal about what it is. And this mix, this uh, contradicting signals, one of them I tell you, look, we are here for the long run. We want our customers to be happy. We want them to get the best product you can give them. And giving you incentive to push other products, you're going to listen, this mix signal, you're going to listen to the incentives, not just because of the money, also because you want to be a good, a good employee, a good worker. How do you design a good incentive program? First of all, you need to understand the culture. So when I talk about signals, signals are going to have different meaning to different people. So maybe we'll talk later about recycling. Like maybe you care about the environment. They'll give you one type of incentives. But your neighbor couldn't care less about, about the environment. For them, I'll have to design very different incentives. So when I talk about culture, I'm not talking about, it could be American versus Israeli versus Chinese, say. 
or it could be within uh, within San Diego. It could be the banker, teacher, taxi driver, lawyer. Each one has a different culture, and you need to understand the culture. Then, when you design the incentive, you need to understand the signal that they send within this culture. Right. So, what do you have? And in many cases, I when I talk with companies, I tell them that they have all the right uh, C-suite people. So they have CEO and CFO and whatever. They don't have a common sense officer, which very often they need. Someone that will look at the incentives that you are designing and tell you, for example, this this doesn't make sense. This is going to upset people. Uh, we should do that this way, right? So you should really think about these things. Let me give you an example. So the CEO of Coca-Cola at some point had a great idea. said, let's put a thermometer in the vending machine. And then on the regular price, say, is a dollar. But on low today's, we can raise the price to $1.50. That's Econ 101. That's what we teach our students. It's called price discrimination. Other places are doing this. What he didn't understand is that people are going to be really upset by that. Right? Why are you taking advantage of us? Why are you raising the prices on us when it's hot? Right? That's not nice. Now, if he would have thought about it, Differently, so that's that's also, by the way, coming up from uh, Kahneman and, Sver- and Tversky's research about framing. He could have said, "Look, the regular price is dollar fifty. On cold days, we're going to give you fifty cents discount. So it's exactly the same prices. On a cold day, you pay a dollar, and hot day, you pay dollar fifty. But in the first case, the way he did it, you are an annoying company. In the second one, you're great. You're coming. You're you're working with us. You're giving us discount when you think. Right. So that's the kind of things that you should think about. What what do I, as a customer, going to how am I going to interpret what you're doing? Don't people see through that? For instance, driving around, every gas station says, you know, five cent discount for cash. Very few people pay cash for for gas in a car. You know, really, what they're doing is they're charging me five cents more per gallon to use a credit card, and we all understand that we have to live with it. But you know, I, I, I think, I think be- by the way, that that's for legal reasons. They're not allowed to to charge you more for using a credit card. So that's why they're doing it this way. But they, they wind up do charging you more for using your goodness. Talk, talk a little about, give us an example of a poorly designed incentive program. You have a theory, for instance, about crowding out, maybe a crowding out example. Sure. So here's an example that I think can illustrate what do I mean by signal. So I'm, I'm going to talk about self-signaling and social signaling. Social signaling are relatively easy. I want to look good. I want my reputation is important. I want other people to care about me. Self-signaling is a bit more um, complex notion, which is I learn about myself from my action. I don't really know how good I am. And when I look at my action, I, mean, I interpret them. So think about uh, you live in a cold place. And one morning you see your neighbor goes around with the bag filled with the 100 soda cans in the snow, in the ice, to the recycling center. What are you going to think about her? Probably that they're environmentally conscious and how nice it is they're doing that. Exactly. She is great, right? Now, she's probably going to think the same about herself, by the way, because she could have thrown it to the trash, right? So she's, she's good. She's happy. Now imagine that, that your mayor decides to put a 10 cent incentive for recycling soda cans. Now you see her going to the recycle center with this trash bag. And now you're going to say, really, for $10, she's going in the ice and the snow and the cold and whatever for $10? Economists would look at it and say, oh, 
it's your you leave everything the same you are adding ten dollars of course people will be at least the same or even more likely to but when you understand the psychology the signal that you're sending now it's not about the environment now you're doing it because of the money that's the interpretation that people have and now she might be less likely that's the crowding out that you talked about she's going to be less likely to do it because the social signal that she's sending is less strong and it might even be that the self-signaling she's not going to feel that good about what she's doing because of that right because you're sending different signal once there are incentives over there. And those are the kind of uh, incentive scheme that you should avoid using. You mentioned earlier culture, but you defined it a little bit um, differently than, than I think the, the common definition of culture. In, in some ways, it's what I think of as um, what psychologists and behavioral economists always talk about is as utility value, right? The perceived value of an activity that leads to a positive outcome. And it's always been very difficult to judge that across individuals. You might value hard work or even a specific amount of money differently than I do. So you cited it as an issue in designing effective incentive programs. And how do you overcome it? How do you, how do you, I mean, if I'm running an incentive program for 40, 50 or 4,000 people, how do you overcome it? So let's stay with the, with the environment part about. When the early 2000s, the first hybrid cars came to, to light. The late 90s, early 2000s, and the two big players were Honda and Toyota. They come, come up with the cars. The cars were really bad, right? So for the same money, you could get a much, you could, you could have bought a much better car. That was actually great for them because if I chose to buy a hybrid car in 2003, that meant that I really care about the environment. I signal, that's the social signaling, maybe also the self-signaling that we talked about, that I really feel good about myself because now I prove that I care about the environment. Otherwise, I wouldn't touch them. But then, Honda made a mistake and Toyota made a great decision, and because of that, Toyota won the entire market. Honda chose to base the car on the Honda Civic. Now, Probably the engineers said, look, it's very easy. All we have to change is the engine. Everything else is going to be the same. The entire supply chain is, is you know, great, uh, great idea. But then when you drove a Honda Civic, remember, the hybrid version was really bad. You got into your parking lot and no one knew that you were driving a hybrid car. Toyota took a very different approach. They said, look, we are going to redesign the car completely. That ended up to be the Prius. And now when you enter the parking lot, everyone will know, wow, that's a great, great guy. John is really great. He's driving uh, this hybrid car. He really cares about the environment. The signaling value was really high. And if you, even the CEO of Honda said that that was the biggest mistake they've made. And that's why uh, Toyota won the market, right? So if you understand this, you can do it. And what do I mean by culture? They were targeting people who care about the environment. Both Toyota and Honda targeted these people because if you didn't care about the environment, you wouldn't buy this. So that, that's what I mean by culture. If you wanted to get someone off his uh, pickup truck and into a hybrid, you needed to do something else. You needed to add some other things. So today you can see people who couldn't care less about the environment still driving the Prius because now Prius is a competitive car. And if you drive a lot, it can save you money, right? So it's really, that's what I meant by, by targeting the right the people, the right culture, if you want. I call it culture. You can call it whatever you want, whatever phrase you want. I hope that the listeners understand what we mean. It, it seems that a lot of this is what 
I would call intrinsic motivation, motivation that comes from within as opposed to ex extrinsic, I'll give you $500 more to buy a Prius, right? When does which work better? If your goal was to get the people off their pickup truck and into the hybrid car, you should have given them a lot of money and then it would work. That's the right way to do it. That might not work for the people who care about the environment, right? So these people, you needed to give them a signaling that they're driving a bad car and everyone sees it, right? So that's an example of different incentives for different cultures. If I'm the guy who couldn't care less about the environment, but I drive Uber and the gas is so expensive, just give me a great deal on, on the Prius and I'll drive. I'll hate every minute of it maybe, but I'll drive. If I don't drive a lot, it doesn't make sense for me to buy a Prius. It's a bad car, but I want to signal to everyone that I care about the environment, I'll go with the Prius because it's a bad car, right? So different people, different motivation. Let's talk about culture more generally. I've noticed a change in popular culture, particularly popular American culture. It used to be that ostentatious displays of wealth and privilege were generally discouraged, right? You were allowed to be wealthy, everyone knew it, but you didn't rub it in people's face. Now it's lauded. I mean, we can think about the Kardashians or influences our social media. And to some extent, I guess this is cyclical. We live through the Gilded Age when the same thing happened. Is this a move from self-signaling to social signaling? Have you thought about it? What might cause it? What, what, how people regard this? So I, I don't know if it's that new. So one of the things I talk about it in the book, uh, one of the unintended uh, consequences of incentives, 1800, 1700, around that time, government wanted to have progressive tasks, so uh, tax the rich more, and they decided to tax them based on how many windows they had in their homes. Right? That's, that was a good thing. The result was that many people started blocking their windows because they didn't want to pay tax. But you also had the, the opposite movement. You had people who just had many, many windows on their, on, in their home. They wanted to signal that they can pay the, the tax, right? That was their way to show that they're rich back then. It is the whole industry. I don't think that it's that recent. It might be the fact that you know, it's, it's more acceptable, acceptable today, but there were always products that were designed just to signal that you are rich. It could be, you know, very expensive watches or pens or cars or whatever it is. People needed uh, to show this in, in many cases. It's definitely a matter of uh, culture, right? So like you said, uh, looking at you by the color of your hair and beard, we are about the same age, I would imagine. Uh, it's, it used to be different, more subtle. Maybe with social media, it became more... Uh, more acceptable to show off with money that you have. I don't know. So I, I look at uh, many of the things that happen on Instagram, for example, people that take pictures of the food instead of eating it, and they don't understand it, but that's just because I'm old, I think. So we just, uh, it's a different culture that is harder, but you can definitely, you know, explain it with incentives. You can say, look, I want to show you how perfect my life is, how great I'm doing. Let's move a, a step even further up the society ladder from culture. And let me ask you a question that some might consider controversial. Does religion use incentives and signaling? I, I would think I'm correct that it uses both self-signaling and social signaling to incent certain behaviors that it regards as ethical, according to that religion's precepts. 
Have you looked at the major monotheistic religions in this way? Absolutely. So that's, uh, I think that to me, religious is just based on incentives, right? It's just incentives. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to touch the, the question whether there is God or not. You know, I'm, uh, that's not my job. But to analyze it from an incentive perspective, it's very easy. I'm Jewish. And kosher, eating only kosher, that's one example of very strong incentives. So basically, I, I eat kosher and not kosher. So I can go to kosher restaurants in Tel Aviv, where I am now, or to re- other restaurants. But a religious person will go only to kosher restaurants, which means that you, you basically have much more economic power to the kosher restaurants. And it doesn't end over there. So um, I have two Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox cousins. They were my father's cousins. They live in a, in a city next to each other, brothers, right? They don't eat in, eat in each other's place because this one comes from this rabbi and this one comes from that rabbi and they have different kosher rules. That's all economics. That's all, you know, you need to buy from my butcher and not from their butcher, right? So that, that's an example. Now, if you want to talk about self-signaling, all issue of guilt, for example, that's an incentive. I talk about guilt as incentive in the book. Basically, if you do something that is not good, you see it, and maybe God sees what you did, and you can feel guilt, and guilty about it, and that's definitely a very strong incentive. You don't want guilt is a, one of the worst emotions that you can have, and if you can prevent it, that's great. So, absolutely. Let's go for the big picture to the very specific. What are the incentives for Uri easy? What gets you up in the morning? What 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 makes you want to live each day the way you do? So um, living with someone like me, I guess, is very annoying for many reasons. One of them is that I try to analyze things by incentive. So why am I talking with you now? Because I want to sell books, right? It's an interesting discussion and I want to sell books, right? Why are you talking with me? You, you want to, to talk with interesting people, maybe. And to, to have people listen to your podcast, right? So each one of us, you can, you can analyze by understanding what's their incentives. Maybe a more fundamental question is, I have tenure, I'm a full professor. I Publishing and doing research doesn't really reward me in any material way at this stage. But it's kind of, so it's, some of it is curiosity, some of it is competition with my peers, right? With my colleagues, I want to show them that I'm better than them. So it's, it's all, you know, recognition, social status, all of this good stuff is, is out there. Where does fun fit into it? Oh, um, it's so much fun when you, I, I run experiments. When you see the results of the experiment and you find something exciting, it's so much fun to see. And it's just, that's, you know, my, my biggest fan. That's and smoking cigars are my best moments. Happy, okay. happy moments. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax? Cigars and doing stand-up paddleboarding in San Diego. What music do you listen to? My son's picks on uh, Spotify. It's mostly rock and roll from the 60s and 70s. He has an old soul. What are you reading right now? I'm reading a book by the same publisher that uh, translated a book in Hebrew. So he translated my book and another book that he gave me, and it's about Really, some religious learning, Jewish religious learning that is as far from me as possible. And I actually find it interesting. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you go? Uh, where I'm going in a few weeks, the beach in Italy. So 
going to Sicily and then to Tuscany on the beach. That's and, it, and needs, why it needs to have seen. I love Italy. I love the culture, the food, the people, and the, the place. And it needs to have a sea next to it for me to be happy. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you whisper in their ear? The first one would be, I'm sorry, I have to give two. The first one will be smile more. Smiling is underrated. Really try to smile more. If I could go back to me when I was 16, that's what I would tell myself. And the second one is trying to understand why we still have wars in the world. Maybe someone can explain to me why do we still have wars in 2023 and we still fight with each other and kill each other. I don't understand why. I would think that's a question of incentives for different people having different incentives and different, I'm going to use the word profit, not necessarily to mean monetary, but power. But and why, why are we following them? There are various incentives for various people. For yes, instance, yes, yes. Um, the force that one company has gathered in to fight for Russia against Ukraine, obviously, it's we, we're taking you out of jail if you fight. That's a pretty powerful incentive. It is. So that's that's the kind of answers I'm looking for. If you're Ukrainian, in this case, I can understand why they fight. They They try to save their homes. If you're Russian, I cannot understand. But then, like you said, if I take you out of jail and put you over there, that might be a good incentive. Well, apparently a lot of Russians can't either. A lot of Russians have left the country to avoid the fight. These are the sort of, of conversations that uh, make this podcast a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John McCumnick with our special guest, Professor Ari Ganesi. So, and, and, and the two, his two ending Thoughts, I think, are the diametrically opposite of each other. Why do we have wars and thinking about them through a lens of incentives and uh, some good advice to smile more? Maybe if we all smile more, as, as trivial as that sounds, perhaps we realize that it's, it's just not worth it and we wouldn't have so many wars. Thank you, Professor. Much appreciated. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCombick, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higasa, John McCombick, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.